Welcome to The Beat, a podcast series from the COPS office at the Department of Justice, featuring interviews with experts from a varied field of disciplines. The Beat provides law enforcement with the latest developments and trending topics in community policing. Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Beat. I'm your host, Jennifer Donnellan. Today, we are honored to be speaking with our next guest, Kathleen O'Toole. Chief O'Toole is one of the highest regarded and experienced law enforcement executives in our nation's history. So we've got a lot to talk about, and I cannot again express how excited we are to have you with us, Chief O'Toole. Well, thank you very much, Jennifer, and thank you for those very kind comments. I just feel blessed. I've had so many wonderful opportunities throughout my career. I'm jealous, quite frankly. (laughs) You've been everywhere, coast to coast and across the pond. So just to give our listening audience a taste of your career, a quick bird's eye view. Chief O'Toole is an American law enforcement officer who served as chief of the Seattle Police Department from 2014 to 2017. She was previously the first female commissioner of the Boston Police Department. In 2006, she announced she was leaving Boston to move to Ireland. And in Ireland, she was the first chief inspector of the Garda Inspectorate, which was established to ensure the National Police Service there operated efficiently. The inspectorate reported directly to Ireland's Minister for Justice and Equality. And then she returned here to the United States to take her position in Seattle. Her career also includes service as Lieutenant Colonel of the Massachusetts State Police from 92 to 94. She was appointed to the cabinet position of Secretary Executive Office of Public Safety in Massachusetts in 1994 and served in that position until 1998. She then at that time became a member of the Patton Commission. Now that is a landmark commission headed by Lord Patton of Barnes, which reformed policing in Northern Ireland and it led to the formation of the police service in Northern Ireland. Again, just an amazing career. And I can't tell you how honored we are to have you with us. So I'd like to just start off with the beginning. What motivated you to get involved in law enforcement in the first place? Well, Jennifer, I wish I could say that there was something strategic about it all, but I think it's just been hard work and great mentors and certainly wonderful support from family. But I was a Boston College undergraduate when the first female patrol officers were hired in Boston. And at the time I thought, I think it was 1974, I thought, why would any woman in her right mind take that job? (laughs) And only a few years later, A friend of mine wanted to be a police officer in the worst way, so I agreed to go along and take the test just to show moral support. And I thought the test-taking experience would be valuable because I was preparing to take the LSATs. I wanted to go to law school. I later discovered that through some administrative error, my name was left off the list for hiring at the Boston Police Department. And when I discovered that, I was a second-year law student. I was attending law school at night. Well, there's nothing probably more obnoxious than a first or second year law student. So I thought, well, I think that I need to bring a case before the Civil Service Commission and determine where this process went awry. So I was doing it just for experience. And I thought maybe my professors will give me some credit for bringing this case before the Civil Service Commission, never intending to take the job with the Boston police. And then sure enough, I represented myself. They called my bluff. They offered me the job. My friends in law school dared me to take it, thinking it would be an interesting opportunity to experience the law from a different perspective. And here I am four decades later. So 
you know, I think that I feel so blessed because in retrospect, I couldn't imagine myself sitting in an office doing legal research for the last 40 years. I really enjoyed being out in the community, providing service to people. And I still reflect on my early days as a Boston police officer. And those were absolutely my favorite days in my career. I think hands down, that's my favorite story about how you got into policing. That is incredible. Yeah, I took that, the job on a dare. <laughs> that is amazing. I love that. I'm never going to forget that. I, I don't think our listeners will forget that. So let's go back to those early days. What was your first assignment, your, your duty station? Well, at first I went to the academy, of course, and the academy was very rigorous. But back in those days, we were taught to go out and fight the war on crime. And it was really the police versus the community, go out there, make arrests. We were measured by how many arrests we made, how many tickets we wrote, how quickly we arrived at our 911 calls. And it was exciting. It was exhilarating. I loved that part of the business, you know, racing around answering 911 calls. But I soon discovered that's only a fraction of what police actually do. I think we do a horrible job of telling our own story. In reality, police spend much more time responding to calls to assist vulnerable people. I had the opportunity, the privilege of saving a couple lives, delivering a few babies, you know, being there for people in need at their most challenging times. And I think I was only on the job for about six months when I thought, wow, you know, I've found my true vocation. This is not just a job. This is something I really love. Do those moments, you know, we just went over your list of accolades and your stellar career. Do those list of moments delivered a few babies, saved a few lives? Are, are those the moments that stand out for you? Yes. For me, those are so much more important than, you know, I appreciate, you know, some of the awards and some of the recognition I've received. You know, I've been humbled by that. But again, I just feel so fortunate that I found a career I loved. You know, I grew up in a family where my dad was a public school teacher. My uncle was a missionary priest. There was always this emphasis on providing service to others, you know, trying to help other people. And, you know, I really appreciate the fact that I was exposed to that as a youngster because I think that helped me make some of my decisions, my career decisions later. Sure. And in the final analysis, those are the moments that we look back on is what do we do for others? Those are the things that really truly impact one's spirit. That's just amazing. One of the things that I'd like to talk to you about is being a woman in a male-dominated field, but I am sure that this is something you have been talking about for four decades. And I don't know if it's something that you're like, you know what, I'm just a person. Can we get past that? Or is it something that you embrace and say, yeah, sure, let's talk about it? No, I always say, sure, let's talk about it. I think it's important to talk about it. I didn't have any female mentors. There were very few women in policing at the time. In fact, I think there were just a few dozen in the Boston Police Department, certainly less than 100 when I started. So all of my mentors were male. And I have to say that they were extraordinary. You know, people like Bill Bratton, who was my mentor in Boston, when he was only 32 years old, he was the number two in the Boston Police Department. He went on to be police commissioner in Boston, New York City police commissioner on two occasions, and also served as the chief out in LA. But he tapped me on the shoulder when I was only 32 and gave me an extraordinary opportunity to work on his command team. You know, I also had some great mentors and people like Governor Bill Weld. When he called me in and offered me the job as Secretary of Public Safety, my response was, Governor, I've never really been involved in partisan politics. I thought these jobs were reserved for people who, who are. And he chuckled, laughed and said, I have enough of them around. Actually, I think you're a pretty good cop. 
And he was a wonderful role model, very principled. You know, he always said that principle was more important than politics. He never meddled on a day-to-day basis in the business, but he was always there to back us up when we needed support and guidance. Uh, And then Chris Patton, who was the chair of the Patton Commission in Northern Ireland, I learned so much from him in that very divided environment. I reminisce a lot about that these days because I think there are lessons I learned there that are relevant here in this country now. But it was such a divided environment. And Patton said, you know, we'll just go where the truth takes us. And he was such a decent principled person. But I learned so many lessons from those male mentors. I have lots of female friends that didn't have that advantage or that faced a lot more obstacles than I did, but I just kept my head down. You know, there were times when I felt maybe I had to go a bit beyond to prove myself as a woman, whether I was out in the field or whether I was in a management position, but I just worked hard. And as I say, I don't claim to have all the answers. I've made certainly made my mistakes and learned from them, but I was very fortunate to have support from my colleagues and to have great mentors. And But for their support, I wouldn't be where I am today. I think you do. As you talk to women who are you know, the firsts, you know, you're the first female commissioner of the Boston Police Department. You know, there were no other women ahead of you in that position. You were the first. And when you talk to women who are at the top of their agencies, oftentimes they do talk about those male mentors and everybody's sort of expecting there to be these female mentors. But in these male-dominated fields, they didn't exist. And I know now more and more we're seeing that, but it's those male mentors who, you know, you stand on their shoulders and with their encouragement and advice. And like you said, that hard work isn't something that quite frankly, I think is something that we should just mention and and look past because I'm assuming when you talk about that, you not necessarily, I I didn't hear you describe it as, as unfair, but you knew that you, you sort of cross your T's and dot your I's because of the perception or because you knew you had to in order to prove yourself? Well, maybe I was proving as much to myself as anyone else. I've always Mm. categorized myself as a workaholic. I'm sure my husband and daughter would agree with that. Thankfully, they've been incredibly supportive. But yeah, I think I I always tried to pull my weight. I really always just wanted to do a good job. But I think in policing, it's an interesting business because one doesn't establish credibility sitting behind a desk as the chief, you really need to establish a credibility early in your career when you're out there on the front lines working side by side with people. And again, I had the opportunity to do that in Boston as a patrol officer, as a detective, as a decoy officer. So, you know, all of those experiences, I think, cumulatively helped as I rose through the ranks. And I think it's interesting too, women in policing as you were coming up and now the topic of women in policing in present day, there's been so much that law enforcement as a whole has faced in recent months and years that understandably so, there's been a pivot to these very large scale and important critical issues facing law enforcement in America. But where on the scale do you feel that the topic of women in policing is now? And is it where it needs to be? Or have we arrived? Well, that's a really interesting question. Certainly, we've recruited lots more women into policing, but certainly not enough. And sadly, I think that's because, as I alluded to earlier, we we don't tell our own story. And 
I'm not sure that candidates truly understand what police do. If you watch these shows on television, you know, one would think it's all about racing around in cars and gunfights and fighting crime when policing goes so far beyond that. So I think that over the years, while we've recruited more women, I think we need to do a much more effective job of recruiting, not just for women, but you know, to get a really diverse candidate pool, diverse in every respect, not just in terms of race and gender, but diversity of thought as well. We need people with a variety of experiences, a variety of life experiences, a variety of educational experiences. And I think our organizations are much stronger. When you mentioned earlier about some of the lessons that you learned coming up that are relevant present day, what were you talking about there? Well, I was talking about my experience in Northern Ireland when I went there to work on the peace process as part of the Patent Commission. It was really, truly a life-changing experience for me to walk into a society that was so divided. It just seemed like there was no light at the end of the tunnel. I actually started traveling to Northern Ireland before the ceasefire, before the peace process. So I had an opportunity to see just how challenging it was. I recall my first visit there, I was asked to go over and do a series of lectures on community policing. It was the early 1990s. And when I arrived, they were very proud to announce that they had just established their first community policing team in West Belfast. And they said, look, before you start your lecture series here, we'd love to have you go visit our community policing team and maybe even go out on patrol with them. And I said, oh, that would be awesome. I'd love to do that. So I arrived at this police facility that was surrounded by barbed wire and huge walls, and it was truly a fortress. Getting into it was a challenge. Once I was admitted and met the community policing team for a few minutes, they said, okay, we're headed off on patrol. And then the next thing you know, I was in the back of an armored Land Rover with a flak jacket surrounded by people with rifles and other types of weapons. And we went out on a community policing patrol with a military escort Every time we stopped at a light, you know, somebody came up from a gun turret or something in the military vehicle and did a 360 scan to see if, you know, there were any threats on the horizon. And then on two occasions, we stopped in neighborhoods and exited the Land Rover, but very carefully with weapons drawn, you know, watch, walk down the street for a block. And that was the definition of community policing in Northern Ireland at the time. (laughs) Wow. All I could think of was that I remember hearing a uh, quote once by George Bernard Shaw about two countries separated by a common language. I said, community policing in Northern Ireland was a far cry from our definition of it here in the U.S. But I learned and I saw how that incredibly divided society was able to progress over the course of the next decade. And I mean, there'll be long, you know, for generations, you know, the, there have been and will continue to be tensions, but it's an entirely different place than it was before. And the vast majority of people are living there in a peaceful and, you know, relatively prosperous environment now. Well, uh, you know, there are still challenges in the inner cities like there are here. You sure. know, people who don't have the opportunities, you know, that, that don't have the educational opportunities, the job opportunities. I mean, they have to work on the same social issues there that we need to work on here. But I'm the eternal optimist, given some of the experiences I had there. 
Well, and I was going to say, I mean, there must be so much there that you learn that you could then turn around and apply to this country. I mean, I think that there are many who feel like the division in this country at this moment in time is so stark that they can't see a light at the end of the tunnel. That policing in America right now, will we ever turn the corner where it's looked upon by the majority as necessary and as critical as it is to our daily lives instead of all the negativity that has come in recent times? So are there lessons that you learned there in Ireland, having seen all of that? Because you're right, everything you described, I'm like, that's not community policing, that's warfare. What lessons do you share with us here based on what you learned there? Well, I'll talk a little bit about community policing because it's a phrase that's been used fairly liberally since early in my career. In the 1980s, we started to see more community policing programs emerge across the country. But at the time, it was more of an assignment or a unit in a police organization that pretty much excused everybody else from doing it. Right. I think, again, I uh, mentioned my experience in the academy where we were taught to go out and fight the war on crime and then discovered that policing went well beyond that. In the 1990s in Boston, we started to work on some of the gang violence, for instance, and multidisciplinary approaches to help young people get beyond some of the challenges they were facing in Boston and elsewhere in Massachusetts. That focus really paid off in great dividends. It reduced homicide rates. We helped develop programs to support young people as opposed to just reacting and arresting people. You know, when I first started in the business, it was all about law enforcement and it was very reactive. We've evolved now so that prevention and intervention are equally important. And the police play an important role in that, but the police can't do that alone. So I think that right now, With all the concern around policing, it's difficult to see the evolution that's occurred over the last three or four decades, but we're in a much different place now than we were when I first came on the job. And I guess if there's one point I'd really like to emphasize is that the police need to reform and innovate. We'll never finish that job. We should constantly look to improvement. How can we get better? How can we use new tools? How can we engage to a greater extent with our community? So that goes without saying. But if we're working on the police problem alone, we're not going to solve the challenges we're facing in our communities. No. And you hear them talking more and more about trying to get social welfare involved and mental health involved because a police officer in the modern age wears so many different hats, as you discussed. I mean, it's not just the stereotypical that you see on television. Hey, we got a 911 call. Let's go. You can be a counselor on one call. You can be a doctor on another call. And that's a lot for these law enforcement officers. But I think that the recognition of the industry and sort of trying to bring in partners to help us with that is a big key. And I think something you said too, that it's a job that's never finished. It has to continue to evolve. Yeah, we need to embed this culture of innovation and into our organizations, I believe. But again, I don't think we can overstate the importance of these multidisciplinary approaches. And I'll just point to a few examples. I was going to ask. Yes, please. Yeah. So again, I mentioned the 1990s. In the early 90s, I think Boston one year had 154 homicides. One is too many, but you know, 154. You know, that was when the city maxed out and. I think that the community, the police department, everybody reached the saturation point and said, look, obviously we've been trying hard, but we need to do business a different way. And barriers were broken down. Community leaders came to the table. The faith-based community played a huge role. 
I was working as Secretary of Public Safety at the time. Paul Evans did a wonderful job as a police commissioner in Boston during that period. And, you know, the police department in Boston and police departments around the state recognized the need to focus more on prevention and intervention. But in doing so, they had to partner with other organizations. So in Boston, for instance, the police partnered with probation and parole and other facets of the criminal justice system, you know, the youth justice services and departments like that, also with education, social services, health services. And it was a truly a remarkable partnership. And then when I became commissioner in the early 2000s, we were able to continue some of those efforts, those multidisciplinary approaches, and actually get into homes and engage with people. It was a more focused approach where we focused on families and individuals that we knew were really struggling. And we tried to get in there, particularly to address concerns about young people who were turning to violence. And we get into their homes and tried to help determine, did they need tutoring? Did they need a summer job? Did they need some type of mentoring program? Did the younger kids need summer camps? Did they need food in their refrigerator? So it was a multidisciplinary approach to try to put our arms around some of these kids and some of their families to try to keep them on the right track, prevention and intervention, so we didn't have to resort to enforcement. And I think that in Boston, Over the course of, I think, six or seven years during the 90s, the Boston Police Department was able to reduce that 154 homicides down to 31. Again, 31 too many. In Seattle, our greatest challenge was at the intersection of public health and public safety and homelessness, mental health crisis, addiction conditions. And when I arrived out there, they were barely tracking crime stats. I mean, they're tracking enough crime stats to send them in and report them to the federal government. But we drilled down, we did a better job of tracking crime. But then we also started to track all the other work police did. And we determined that nearly 10,000 times a year, police officers in Seattle responded to somebody in serious mental health crisis. Wow. Now, it would be easy to say as we're rethinking policing at this point, well, turn all that work over to clinicians, turn all that work over to social workers. But then if you take a closer look at that data, many of those people were threatening themselves, a large percentage, I think up to 50% were either threatening themselves or someone else, and a good percentage of them were also armed. So we have to be very thoughtful about how we rethink some of these responses, but we should be harnessing resources. We should be working as partners on community safety solutions. It's not just about policing. We need to better train police. We need to have the right policies and procedures in place. We need to recruit the right people. We need to hold them accountable. We can do all that work on policing, but if we're really going to promote a model of community safety, we need to do it in concert with partners. And something you said earlier, too, community policing shouldn't just be a unit. It should be the overall goal and intention and mission of an entire agency, correct? Absolutely. It should be the foundation on which everything is built. And we really need to engage and engage authentically. I've been to a lot of community policing meetings where the police sit up front and give report out and provide information to the community, but there's no real authentic engagement. That's not community policing. Community policing is when people in the community and cops on the front lines come together, discuss the challenges they're all facing, and work on solutions that will produce good results. In Seattle, we developed we call them our community policing micro plans. 
we had a city of neighborhoods in Seattle, proud neighborhoods, very similar to Boston, you know, city of proud neighborhoods. Mm-hmm. And each neighborhood, we worked with Seattle University as an academic partner, and we went out to each neighborhood and we had police officers working in those neighborhoods and people living and working in those communities develop the top three to five priorities that they thought the police should focus on and work together on. And it was remarkably successful effort. Of course, the police are always going to focus on violent crime and part one crime, but most people are more concerned about quality of life issues in their neighborhoods. So anyway, I don't want to get too far off on that tangent. No, I, I'm t- I'm I know a, our listeners are hanging on your every word, so please, no. <laughs> I, I'm just a, a real advocate for getting out there. And again, that authentic engagement with people in neighborhoods, in local neighborhoods. I really think that community policing should be built grassroots from the bottom up with people living and working in neighborhoods, having a voice as to what the priorities should be. And police officers on the front lines, too. As a chief, it wasn't appropriate for me to, especially out in Seattle, go into a new city and dictate the community policing strategy from the top down. I wanted to build it grassroots from the bottom up. You said something earlier about how law enforcement isn't great about telling their own story. The efforts that you discussed in both Boston and in Seattle, how much of the community knew about that, like really knew about that? And how did you get that story out? Well, in Seattle, I was fortunate that I had some pretty creative people in the public information office, and they were great at social media. And I just don't think you can communicate enough. And again, I'm not saying just feel good pro-police commercials. I think that transparency is so important. If you look at the Seattle Police website, we were publishing everything, all of our use of force data. We'd anonymize some of it, of course, to protect privacy issues, but we provided as much data as we could to the community so that they had a better sense for what we were doing. When we determined that we were dealing with 10,000 people a year in mental health crisis, we put all that data out there in the form of a report so that our community could see what we're actually doing. I mean, transparency is so important. And I think historically in policing, for whatever reason, the culture was to guard information. You know, well, we can't tell you anything yet. It's under investigation. We'll get back to you. I learned from my mentors and from my own personal experience that whether it's a good story or a bad news story, stand up, tell the truth, take responsibility, give people as much information as you can. And they really, they genuinely appreciate that because they know you're being straight with them. And also, I think that police leaders, police at every rank should try to get out to the greatest extent possible and engage with people in the community. Because you know what? When you get together on a human level, you realize you actually have a lot more in common than you ever would have imagined. And that's that relationship by relationship. And it may seem you know, overwhelming and that may not make a dent, but it actually will. Mother Teresa said one life at a time and and look what she did. So I think you're right from the grassroots up and every opportunity possible. There's also social media now. So law enforcement really has afforded an opportunity that in the past they didn't have, which is they have methods by which, as you talked about with your public information office, you have opportunities to tell your own story and not have to wait and rely on the media to do it. And I do think you're right. I think that transparency is the medicine. 
truth may uh, not feel comfortable sometimes, but it will set you free. So <laughs> I think that's so important. You're absolutely right. And I mean, there have been times when it's been incredibly difficult to stand up and, and in the midst of a tragedy or a disaster, or, you know, even in Boston, I had to stand up when I was commissioner. I'd only been in the job for a few weeks when a very sad, wrongful conviction was announced. And I had to stand up and apologize to that person who had spent decades in jail for a crime he hadn't committed. So, you know, on a human level, it can be hard, but I think in terms of police legitimacy and public trust, you know, we need to just provide the facts. And then if it's a bad news story, we need to tell the truth, take responsibility, and then work with the community to ensure that we address any weaknesses that we identify. Right. And I think that you earned a lot of credit with that so that when the bad thing does happen, at least the community can trust the fact that what's coming out of the mouths of their law enforcement is true because they've told the good and the bad and they'll forgive you for it and you can keep moving forward. So I think that your advice for the rest of the law enforcement profession is right on and what's necessary. So we've been talking around this and talking about this, but just to directly talk about you know how we've all been changed and America has been changed by what we saw and experienced following the worldwide aftermath of the death of George Floyd, you know, are these the changes that you think that is the strategy for American policing moving forward? Transparency, community policing. It's really heart-wrenching for me to see some jurisdictions respond with knee-jerk reactions to these very important issues. The slogans that have emerged, defund, reimagine, look, call it what you want to call it, but please engage in thoughtful dialogue before making any decisions. And I'll give you an example. Again, in Seattle, they've been talking a lot about slashing the police budget. And without any specific plan, you know, just we'll come up with a percentage and we'll just slash the police budget. Well, are they considering when they're slashing that budget that the police are responding to these 10,000 calls a year for people in mental health crisis? And if we make irresponsible decisions based on emotion only or political agendas only, I'm really concerned about the negative impact that it could have on communities across this country. So I'm the first one. I've been a strong proponent of reform and innovation for the past several decades of my career. Really, that's been my top priority. But I just hope that as we continue this process, that we have very thoughtful discussions about it. I'm not saying there shouldn't be a sense of urgency. I like to see things get done. You know, I don't think we should spend the next five years strategizing and planning. The world moves at a fast pace. We need to be nimble. We need to be responsive. We need to get things done. But let's do things in a very responsible, thoughtful way. And I really think that we need to get all partners at the table and not just fix the police problem, but, you know, fix the wider system and come up with holistic solutions that will make our communities safer and more vibrant and provide opportunities for everybody going forward. So, you know, I think that, yeah, there are good things we can do in terms of use of force policies. We need to train police and require them to de-escalate. We need to give them skills in dealing with people in mental health crisis. We need to do courses on implicit bias and bias-free policing. We need to recruit the right people. There's so many things we can do in policing 
I think a lot of those best practices have been out there for a few years now that other jurisdictions can learn from. But I think even more so, we have to get other people to the table, other community partners, and really figure out, like, let's get it right this time. You know, I lived through Rodney King. I was out in Seattle post-Ferguson. George Floyd's murder is not the first crisis in policing that I've lived through. Let's really think about it and get it right this time. And we need to involve others. Others need to step up and play their parts in that as well. And I think others really do need to understand the world of policing. As a show host, I'm a Switzerland, right? And I don't pass opinions, but I will say, knowing what I know about law enforcement, I think that everything you've just described doesn't require a taking away of funds. It actually requires massive investment and that the opposite of what is being suggested should be happening in order to make those changes necessary. And you're right. I mean, it it doesn't need to be delayed. It needs to happen now. But it is a full-scale, wide-scale. It involves more people than just the police. And it's going to require time, money, and the community. And we as a country need to be ready to make those investments in order to move forward. You know what has been heartening for me lately? The private sector's response to a lot of the incidents recently, the private sector's response and commitment now to social justice. And I'm not saying that they necessarily have it right yet, but Mm -hmm. I appreciate the fact that the corporate world is finally recognizing that maybe they have some responsibility here too. Because you're right, police reform is expensive. In Seattle, the U.S. Department of Justice conducted an investigation, determined that there were constitutional violations by the police there, entered into a consent decree in 2013, I believe it was. I arrived in 2014 to implement the new plan for reform, and it has cost the city over $100 million for that police reform only. with new technology systems, with new training. So reform can be expensive. I don't think it needs to be that expensive. I think that some of the cities now that have been through some of those reform processes can provide examples to others that they can learn from and adopt. So I think we can do a, a more efficient job of reform and innovation and policing. But you're right, there's going to have to be an investment. When I was out in Seattle, I went to meet with Howard Schultz at the time, who was the CEO of Starbucks. And I just met with him as a courtesy. He lived in the city. Their headquarters was located in the city. And I thought, "Mm, what am I going to have in common with this guy? You know, but it'll be interesting to meet him anyway. And within the first five minutes, I learned that he grew up in the most dangerous housing development in Brooklyn, New York, and overcame all kinds of personal, you know, family challenges, you know, as a young person, you know, grew up in a very difficult environment and somehow, you know, went on to, again, persevere and have an extraordinary career. When I was leaving his office, he said, well, if I could do something for the police department, what would that be? I think he probably expected I'd say, well, send us coffee machines or (laughs) or help us purchase some new vehicles or something. And I said, my response was hire inner city kids. And I said, because that's what we need to do. We need to put our arm around some of these kids who are underserved 
and we need to provide them with better educational opportunities, mentoring opportunities, job opportunities. I said, I know this works. I've seen it work. And Starbucks was already working on an initiative that they eventually launched where they committed to hiring tens of thousands of young people as part of their Opportunity Youth Program. So that's what we should be doing. And John Hancock Insurance in Boston, when I was commissioner there, they had an extraordinary program, Summer of Opportunity, where they brought young people in. Most of these kids probably wouldn't have expected to graduate from high school. They brought them in. They had mentors. The company actually appealed to many of their employees who provided mentorship and tutoring and job opportunities, internships. And the vast majority of those young people not only graduated from high school, they went on to college. So I know that this works and that's what's really going to make a difference in this world. I'm curious to know your thoughts on this because it seems like such a basic question, but I don't think it's a basic answer. But And you may have one. But when you have a black person in America say, I am afraid when I get pulled over by the police, what do we do about that fear? That really, really saddens me. Well, first of all, I think we need more diverse police services. We need to have police services to reflect the communities they serve. Mm-hmm. So when black or brown people or people representing you know different cultural backgrounds engage with the police, more often they're going to be engaging with people who look like them and you know who share a lot of you know a lot of life experience that's like theirs. So I think that's one thing we need to do. And by the way, this applies wherever we are in the world. That was a huge issue in Northern Ireland. That's why I'm asking you, because you saw that there, and it didn't go along racial lines. It's along the religion and all. But that's why I'd love to know your opinion on that. Yeah, I mean, one of our strongest recommendations was on recruitment and the need to significantly increase the number of Catholic officers at the time in the RUC, because it was well over 90, 95% Protestant, and some would say unionist, you know pro-Union, pro-British, and the minority community there did not feel that it was representative of them or their ideology. So it was uh, very, very divided, and there was a lot of anti-police sentiment there. I mean, it was truly a war. And I think that, again, we need to engage. We had this exceptional exploring program. I'm actually the national chair of the Police Explorers Program, Part of the Learning for Life program that was originally established by the Boy Scouts of America, Learning for Life, it's one of the exploring programs, and there's a law enforcement exploring program. So we had a very successful exploring program in Seattle. It's still a wonderful program. And young people between the ages of, I want to say, 14 and 21, if I recall correctly, come in and serve in a volunteer capacity. And they learn a lot about law enforcement and policing. They do a lot of community engagement, community events. It's just a phenomenal program. The vast majority of participants in Seattle were young people of color. And first of all, I admired their courage because they were often coming from neighborhoods that had tense relationships with the police. But, you know, they took that leap of faith. And I think that's what we need to do. We need to better inform young people of the opportunities. They need to have a clearer understanding of what policing is all about, that it's not just about going out and arresting people, and that most of it's providing help and service to people. And we need to, again, attract more people to the job so that it'll be more representative and people won't have those fears when they encounter the police. 
Nobody can deny the historical role that police played in this country along the lines of race. A dear friend of mine, Terry Cunningham, was police chief in Wellesley, Massachusetts, but went on to be the president of the International Association of Chiefs of Police. A few years ago, he stood up at the annual meeting with thousands and thousands of police chiefs from across the world and acknowledged the role that police in this country have played in terms of racism and apologized and you know, indicated that, you know, we all need to work together to get beyond that, you know, to acknowledge it, but to get beyond it. To heal and move. And and a lot of what you've talked about in terms from a gender perspective and from diversifying and moving forward and reflecting our communities right now is a pretty difficult time, or you're giving your opinion on attracting people to the profession. And, And how do you get past that to bring in the very people you're talking about? Well, that's it. If we're going to make this better, we need to get the right people. People are going to have to take a leap of faith. You know, again, I'll remain optimistic because I've seen that happen on the other side of the Atlantic. Again, I think if people understood, you know, what a wonderful career policing can be if done right, you know, if we select the right people, give them the appropriate policies and direction, if we train them properly, if we hold them accountable when they do things that are inappropriate, you know, we just need to get all of that right. Again, I hope that there are a lot of young people out there who will take that leap of faith because I think that they can be part of something that's exciting, that's going to help this country heal, and that's going to create safer and more vibrant neighborhoods for all of us. We should have had recruitment tables out there at the protests <laughs> because, you know, you bring in that energy and that vigor and that desire for change, then come on in, you know, everyone's welcome. And I love the leap of faith. And I want to give you an opportunity here to talk about anything that we didn't talk about, but I don't think that there's anything more accurate and fitting is that we all take that leap of faith. We do what needs to be done. We don't hang it all on a prayer, but we do what needs to be done. You've seen it. You've witnessed it that it can improve, it will get better if we all just make that investment. And it really, you know, will require a lot of work, no question about it. That leap of faith, I'll repeat that again. I worked with a really cool guy who was on my staff in Seattle. He was a young black man in the community who had a number of, I would say, concerning encounters with the police as a young man. And he made a decision, look, I can complain about this and turn my back and walk away, or I can try to change things from the inside out. And he took that leap of faith and joined the Seattle Police Department. And during the course of his career, he's a bit younger than I am, but he's been around for a while. He has mentored countless high school students who've gone on to college. You know, he's been able to do wonderful work in the community while serving as a police officer. So again, I think we need to do a better job of telling our story and get the right people to jump on board. And hopefully we can all work hard at the healing process and create a better model for safety in our communities. Right. Because you know, and I mean, I'm talking to you. I'm so glad you took that leap and that dare (laughs) and ended up in this profession because you and your words and what you've seen and your thoughts give us all hope and inspiration. And also it's just not a futile think this can be done. And so thank you so, so much for sharing your time and your experiences with us. And policing is a wonderful, wonderful institution, career, life 
And I think that you are case in point evidence of that. And I think you're right. We tell that story, that amazing story, because just listening to you for this time that we've had, you know, if you didn't know about policing, you certainly know about it now. And I hope that stories like yours intrigue others to join in. Well, thank you very much. I really appreciate that. For our listeners, if they wanted to get in touch with you, how would they do that? I'll give you my email address if that's okay. I'm working with a great group of people at a company called 21CP Solutions. Chuck Ramsey was the one who launched the company. He was the former police chief in Washington, D.C. and the commissioner in Philadelphia. Prior to that, he rose to the ranks of the Chicago PD, and he served as President Obama's chair of the task force on policing. The name of the organization is 21CP, 21st Century Policing Solutions, but the email address is Kathleen.O'Toole, O-T-O-O-L-E, at 21 cpsolutions.com. Well, Chief O'Toole, I cannot tell you again how much of a pleasure it was to hear your story and to hear your thoughts. And we will continue to watch you in awe. And we want to thank you for joining us here on The Beat. Certainly my pleasure. Thank you very much. And thank you for everyone for listening. The Beat is brought to you by the United States Department of Justice's COPS Office. The COPS Office helps to keep our nation's communities safe by giving grants to law enforcement agencies, developing community policing publications, developing partnerships, and solving problems. If you have comments or suggestions, please email our response center at askcopsrc at usdoj.gov or check out our social media on Facebook www.facebook.com backslash DOJ cops on YouTube www.youtube.com backslash C backslash DOJ cops office or on Twitter at cops office. Our website is www.cops.usdoj.gov. The opinions contained herein are those of the authors and do not necessarily represent the official position or policies of the U.S. Department of Justice. References to specific agencies, companies, products, or services should not be considered an endorsement by the authors or the U.S. Department of Justice. Rather, the references are illustrations to supplement discussion of the issues.